You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 106. Hello, everyone. Chris Lester here. I'm back from my vacation and ready to get back into the rhythm of writing and podcasting again. I hope you guys enjoyed the interviews I aired while I was away. I got a ton of additional awesome content at Balticon, including interviews with Fran Wilde, Nathan Lowell, Christiana Ellis, Doc Coleman, and PC Herring. Stay tuned for that goodness in the coming months. This week, though, I'm flipping the script for you guys and letting someone interview me. Paul Cooley and Terry Mixon run a writing podcast called The Dead Robot Society, and a few weeks ago they invited me onto their show. This was a lot of fun. We even had a live online audience. I hope you enjoy it. Howdy, patrons! You're here for for DRS Live. It's amazing. So thank you very much for joining us. And and today we are going to talk with Mr. Christopher Lester. That goes by Chris. Hello. I'm afraid that your French accent is just terrible. My French accent is just amazing, man. It makes Pepe Le Pew look like he's from Rhodesia. Try and parse that statement. Go ahead. Try it. Go ahead. I dare you. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you got nothing. <laughs> I don't want to touch that. You don't want to touch that. <laughs> See, Chris, you made a really big mistake when you decided to, you know, agree, agree to the, to join us for this, you know, mess. Oh, that remains to be seen whether this is a mistake or not. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into let, let's start talking. We'll find out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Lester is a podcaster and author, most well known for the Metamore City podcast and the series of stories. Lord, how many books do you have out now, Chris? So four books are in print and a bunch of the short stories and novellas are also available as standalone works. Gotcha. Okay. So basically what it comes down to is you. when I went to your author page this morning, it was just a, a bunch of stuff that was there which is always good to see, which is just completely awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Chris Lester? What does Chris Lester do? Things like that. Uh, I am a scientist by day, writer by night, podcaster on the weekends. I write urban fantasy mostly with a eye towards social commentary um, through the lens of second world fantasy, using fictional worlds in order to comment on situations in our own world. I've done a little bit of horror, a little bit of superhero fiction, a little bit of sci-fi, but my bread and butter is my urban fantasy. You're not a mad scientist, are you? Not mad, just disappointed. Just disappointed. <laughs> there you go, folks. A new a new genre of fiction, disappointed. But disappointed scientists, yes. So what, what kind of scientists are you? Um, I do microbiological testing on drugs and drug product excipients, which means that we test the stuff that is going to go into your medicine to make sure that it doesn't have things growing in it that will kill you. That's always a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. So why haven't you written a story about that or have you? Um, I haven't been doing it that long. I've been busy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I've only been doing this kind of microbiology work since March of last year. Before that, I was doing clinical trials in Montana. And before that, I was a science teacher in California. Mm. Do you like being a scientist better than teaching? Yes, because there's just too many things that are institutionally wrong with the way education is done in the United States that breaks down the humanity of both teachers and students. And it was not something that I could deal with over the long run. I did five years, six years, six years in the trenches, and that was all I could handle. So I'm glad to be working with organisms that are a little easier to deal with than um, <laughs> trauma-afflicted teenagers. That's what he say until, says until the zombie apocalypse starts. What, what is he going to say after the zombie apocalypse starts? Help me! Help me! Help me! Oh, God. This is just terrible. Well, I'm glad to know that you're enjoying your new gig. I remember reading when you switched to that, 
I know you had, you haven't been doing it very, very long, but you seem pretty excited about it. So I'm glad that's working. I was out. excited to have a job. I got laid off from my clinical research job in January of last year and then was unemployed for 10 weeks mm. while I was trying to find something else. And that was why we moved from Montana to Madison. So I was, I was thrilled to be working in the sciences, thrilled to be actually getting paid something closer to what I was worth for my education and experience background. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good flexible job that gives me a lot of control over my own schedule, which is really nice as a writer. Mm-hmm. It's kind and, of nice. Uh, unlike teaching, it doesn't follow me home at night. So I actually have time to write. Yay. Always good to have time to write. Most definitely. So how long have you been podcasting? I started podcasting in September of 2007. That was when the first episode of the Metamore City podcast came out. I did Metamore City pretty much full-time with, with the consistent release schedule for two years. And then it was sort of off and on for another year and a half. And then I went away for a while from 20. 11 to May 2015. And then I came back with my new podcast, which is called The Raven and the Writing Desk. And it is a stripped down weekly show as opposed to the full production, full voice acting, music and sound effects extravaganza that I had with the Metamore City podcast, which did not leave me time for a social life or relationships or anything else. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So it's been good. It's a lot more sustainable than uh, what I was doing before. J.R. Handley posted a, a question there that mirrors something that I was wondering. He says, Chris, how do you do the social commentary without losing audience and coming off as preachy? He knows that mess fiction is a big topic in genre fiction with loads of strong opinions on both sides of the issue. And, and I have to admit, I'm curious as well. Well, first off, you have to be at peace with the fact that you are going to offend somebody at some point. You take a stance on any issue, you're going to turn somebody off and potentially turn them away. But that's the price that you pay for saying something of substance. It's entirely possible to make a living doing fluff entertainment. Here I am, but, right here. <laughs> but that's not terribly interesting to me. I prefer to, you know, if I'm going to to go through the the time and effort to create a story, it's going to be dealing with things that are important to me. And that seems to happen regardless of whether I intend it to or not. When I started writing my first novel for Metamorph City, Making the Cut, it was supposed to be this, you know, just kind of high adventure cyberpunk story about these uh, telepaths who are engaged in a, a shadow war with a uh, vampire crime syndicate. And that's all in there. And there's a lot of action and things blowing up and setting on fire and all of that good stuff. But when I got into the process of writing it, I realized that what the story was actually about it was essentially my love letter to the community that I had, had grown up in, the evangelical, conservative Christian community that I was no longer part of. And it was a, a, a story about somebody who's finding that they don't have a place in the world that they dedicated themselves to. And so they have to, they're, they're now trying to figure out how to change the circumstances around their life so that they can make a new place for themselves. And the telepath society that appears in Making the Cut has a lot of the traits that I found troubling about the society that I had grown up in. There's the sort of implicit sexism. There's the, the sense that anybody outside of the in-group is a threat. Mm. And the sense of being a community under siege that nobody understands. There's the, the sense of a impending apocalyptic confrontation with the evil people on the outside and with the people who are you know on the outside who are not necessarily evil, but are confused and are, are misguided. And you know, all these are all traits that are common to the community that I, I grew up in. And so I realized as I was writing it, 
that making the cut was my way of dealing with these issues and processing them for myself. So I think that the more of yourself that you put into your stories, the more of of what matters to you that's in your stories, the more that you're going to run into topics and situations that are touchy, (laughs) that are confrontational, that require you to put forth a a stance and that's going to turn people off but it's also going to resonate with people you know there's going to be people who contact you and say thank you for for saying this i've you know been you know wrestling with this thing for years and you just put it into words for me um and you gave me a channel to to process it for myself so thank you and so you win some and you lose some, you pick up some readers and you lose some readers. I think the the biggest thing in terms of not coming across as preachy is to just make sure that it flows authentically from the characters and situations that you're writing about. You know, the, the message in my books is something that kind of grows organically from dealing with those, those characters in their lives. And, uh, it's not something like, oh, I, you know, I set out at the beginning to say, oh, I'm going to tell a story about this political topic. No, it's that this political topic has been churning on in my heart, in, in the back of my mind for the last however many months. And I've got these characters who I am interested in. And in the process of telling their story, it gets filtered through that. So it's it's more about being authentic to yourself and not shying away from things that you run into in the process of your writing in order to tone them down or make them politically inoffensive. I know I don't that know if just I'm making any sense or not. Yeah, that makes, no, that that makes, makes sense. perfect sense to me. I know that just in writing futuristic space opera as I do, merely mentioning and having a secondary character who was part of the LGBT community and had the right to marry the person of their choice sparked a backlash from a couple of people. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't expecting that from, you know, just merely mentioning that the person was married. Yeah. Both, both Terry and I are apparently <laughs> part of the, uh, the gay cabal, you know, pushing the gay agenda, making everybody That's gay. So. That's what the person said that I was pushing yeah. the gay agenda. So I already made the, the mind that one of the point of view characters in a, in a novel that came along after that, that I haven't explored that aspect of it is also part of it, part of the LGBT community. So that person is going to become very annoyed when that actually becomes part of the storyline. <laughs> I always like Abigail Hilton's disclaimer at the beginning of her podcast. This book is intended for those who shop in the grown-up section of the bookstore. <laughs> Ask whether you will be offended. You probably will. <laughs> I should add that to my podcast. <laughs> really, really should. You're kidding. Your disclaimer is already like 14 pages of F off. Uh, no, no. <laughs> You've never listened to my podcast. You have no idea what the hell you're talking True. about. I want a happy ending. <sighs> then go to a massage parlor. Ooh. Hey-o. Ooh, hey-o. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Metamore City is? Okay, so Metamore City is... Um, are you talking about the within the world or what the setting is overall? I guess the world in general. Okay. The world in general is a second world fantasy that started out as a uh, spinoff of a shared fantasy world called Metamore Keep. It was started in 1998, I think, 1998 in a writer's community that I was part of. It was an open world, so it was public domain. You know, anybody can come in and write whatever they want to, but here's a universe referee, in essence, who is setting the the ground rules for what's canon and what's not. So you had a curator, essentially. Yeah, curator, exactly. So we had several dozen people who were writing in that that setting, and I was one of the first. I was one of the people who came in and did a lot of the fleshing out of the world setting, establishing the religious environment, a lot of the politi- the, the geopolitics, 
things of that nature, building the world map. And I started having these ideas for um, as we got closer to the turn of the millennium in, I started thinking about, like, oh, you know, what would this world of Metamorph Keep look like in its year 2000 as we they were approaching their equivalent of uh, the 21st century. And so I started having all of these spinoff ideas and wrote some stories and put them out with the community and had some people who were really enthusiastic about them and a whole lot of people who really did not like <laughs> the direction that I was going. And so after a few of those stories were out, we were like, okay, easiest way to handle this is just we're going to fork the code. I'm going to take my storyline here and it's going to become its own thing. It's going to, that, that became Metamore City. And then the Metamore Keep folks who are not happy with what I was doing can go this other route and they'll continue on with the direction that they want to go. So that happened in, I think that it was around 2010 when after the Metamore City podcast had been running for a few years that we officially finalized the divorce between the two settings. But that's where it got started. And so it's a um, it's a, a fantasy swords and sorcery world that grew up and became a futuristic world. They have the equivalent of 21st century technology, but they also have magic, which allows them to cheat. And so they have an effective tech level that is sort of Blade Runner-esque. So you have these very tall buildings and flying cars and flying motorcycles and virtual reality that actually works <laughs> and, you know, cool stuff like that. When you did this divorce, was, was there any, uh, any kind of rights issues when you basically picked it up and took it with you? So because it was a public domain universe at the beginning, it was pretty painless in that respect. You know, none of the, the people involved were lawyers and none of us were the actual inventor of the setting. Kevin Dinahan, who had been the one who created Metamorph Keep, he left the setting and the writer's community about six to 12 months into the existence of Metamorph Keep. And he's like, I'm leaving, guys. Anybody can write anything they want to with this world. Have fun. Wow. So, yeah, he was not interested in defending it as an IP because he he just you know created it because he wanted people to write stories. So, obviously, when I'm dealing with characters who are were created by other people, then you know I'm reaching out to those other authors and saying, you know, hey, this is this is what I have in mind for this character, you know, in this setting. And so early on in the process of creating Metamore City, there were some discussions like with the, this other writer, Ricks, who created some of the characters who I'm using in uh, the lost and the least, which is the new novel that I'm working on right now. And, but a lot, all that stuff was like ironed out years and years ago before the, uh, the podcast ever, ever went live. So Things are, are pretty well settled at this point. So do you uh, uh, still keep an eye on Metamore Keep? I mean, is this still going at this point? It's still going. I don't have time to keep up with it anymore. One of the reasons why I went off and started doing my own thing is because there were some very prolific authors who were writing literally millions of words in this setting that I could not possibly follow all of the twists and turns in their plot lines. And oh boy. so what I did do is I created a wiki for Metamore Keep and got all that set up early on and created, it has a forum built into it, which the, the Metamore Keep writers are still using to communicate with each other. So that allows me to sort of keep tabs on how the, the setting is changing because I can see the changes in the wiki but since we forked the code, I'm not really involved anymore. Is there any anything you made in, or any decision you made in that you wish you had chosen to do something else other than what you did? In terms of how we handled the separation or? Yeah. Um, it probably would have been less confusing and ambiguous early on if we had talked to like a copyright lawyer to help us get make sure that all the details were ironed out early on. But uh, 
none of us were, we were all poor amateurs writing on the internet. So <laughs> nobody <laughs> knew anything about anything, much less copyright law. It would have made things easier if we'd had access to those kinds of resources. I wish that I could have maybe communicated my intentions a little clearer at the outset so that there wouldn't have been some bad feelings because mm. uh, there were some folks who were kind of hurt when I first started doing Metamore City and it started taking off because they're like, hey, there's all these people who are listening to these stories who don't know about Metamore Keep. And so when I realized that that was causing hurt feelings, I went back and made some additions to my my website to honor Metamore Keep and to talk more about how the, the story world had gotten started. And then I added some stuff in the preface to Urban Legends, the first Metamore City story collection that talked about how the story world had gotten started. Mm. And since then, that, seem, that seems to have helped. Yeah, just if I'd approached the whole thing with a little more clarity of communication and a little more tact early on, it probably would have been a good, good thing to do. At least as far as the creator's statement that he was leaving it for everyone to, to do as they wish, that certainly sounds like a release into the public domain to me. So yeah, that yeah, part is pretty clear that, that it's been released. But also, um, when, you're, when you have multiple people writing in, in the same shared universe, you have to be careful not to use their, their creations as part of your IP, though. Right, which is always the, the tangled thing, because by the time that we went our separate ways, the stuff that I had, it, had added into the Metamore Keep setting was integral to those million-word plot lines that mm -hmm. other people were writing. You know, I had created the religion, the Lightbringer religion, that was the foundation of the, the religious conflict within the world. I'd created a lot of the, the political entities that other people were using that they'd picked up and run with. And so if I'd wanted to be a bastard about it and, you know, jealously guard my IP that I'd introduced into the world, nobody would have been able to write anything. And, you know, that that's not a, a good way to handle things. Not for anybody. I'll just pick up my toys, take them away, and you can't play with them. Exactly. It would be stupid. It would involve an army of lawyers, and they'd be the only people who made any money off of it. <laughs> Plus, the likely outcome is nobody can use anything ever again. Exactly. Exactly. Was the custody battle fierce in the divorce, says JR? <laughs> that sounds like it wasn't too, too it bad. It looks like you got to keep the cats, so, you know, that right. worked out well for you. <laughs> so, Paul, do you have one of the questions from our $10 pick? Let's go ahead and, and ask. Yeah, I got them. I'm working on it. Let's see. Subayman asks, what authors do you think have most influenced your writing and in what way? Oh, so preface this by saying that at Balticon this year, I'm going to be on a panel called Being a Fan of Problematic Things. <laughs> it sounds like an awesome panel. <laughs> Hold that in your mind when I tell you that the, the books that have probably influenced me the most as a writer are the, the Ender series by Orson Scott Card. Okay. I do not agree with Scott's politics at all. But he touched on something profoundly true in Ender's Game and Speaker for the Dead and that whole series that has stuck with me more deeply than anything else I've ever read. And his approach to, to character in those books has definitely been a huge influence on me. He writes with a very close third-person perspective that's very limited to the head of the character and delves a lot into what those characters are thinking and feeling. And that is something that has that shown up a lot in my own work. Jim Butcher's Dresden Files has been a, a big influence on me in terms of the, the urban fantasy side of things and the, the wizarding side of things. And trying to incorporate magic into a world of technology. I haven't always made the same choices that he did, but he, he posed a lot of the questions that have 
had me thinking about how I would answer them differently or how I would answer them the same. And older than that is Paul Anderson's Operation Chaos, which was an alternate history fantasy that posited magic in our world. And so you had a magical version of World War II that took place. And then the uh, uh, the story Operation Chaos took place in the years after that after that war. That was one of the best early urban fantasy novels that I have ever read, and it, it stuck with me a lot. Tolkien, of course, C.S. Lewis, you know, the, the masters. The usual who's who. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, you know, Paul's that big of a fan of Tolkien. Nope. Um, what about C.S. Lewis, though, Paul? I'm, I'm curious. I've never heard you express an opinion. I read C.S. Lewis as a kid, and I liked... Uh, Oh boy, I guess. Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? That was actually my least favorite book of that series. <laughs> that was actually my least favorite book. I think Voyage of the Dawn Treader was my favorite. That was my favorite as well. Gosh, I've go. read them all, but it's been so long in the past that I, that I don't really remember the various plots between them. I like them as a whole. Right. Yeah, I, I think Voyage of the Dawn Treader is the only one that really, really stuck with me. For some reason, I, I, Prince Caspian made sense to me. I don't know why. I do not know. And um, let's see other important influences. I wish I'd, I'd had more time to think about this ahead of time. (laughs) (laughs) You have to ask these questions because, you know, got to put you on the spot because you do that to people every week. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I do. I write lots of uh, probing questions for people. I think probably a lot of it comes from the from old mythologies mm. um and from from Greek mythology and from the the stories of the Bible a lot of the the issues that I'm sort of wrestling with are things that that mythologies also dealt with because mythologies are largely the attempts to try to make sense of the world and to make sense of the, the human, the human predicament. And many of them are parables. Mm-hmm. Yes. I know my wife has begun watching American gods. Oh yes. And it's based off of Neil Gaiman's books. I have not read American gods, so I don't really know anything except what I'm seeing on the television and the bits and pieces. I'm going there. I'm curious whether or not that's something that may also be an influence for you. Gaiman is is a master. Um, <laughs> I adore Gaiman stuff. American Gods was probably the least favorite of his books that I have read. Really? Um, the wow. uh, I mean, I like it, and I like what they're doing with the the series a lot. But in terms of like the the Gaiman stories that I, I truly deeply love, it's things like Coraline. Stardust, his uh, short story, uh, A Study in Emerald, which is his uh, Cthulhu slash Sherlock Holmes mashup, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. I love when Neil gets into fairy stories. Coraline is a fairy story, even though the word fairy never appears in it. The Ocean at the End of the Lane is a fairy story. And I was very much channeling Neil Gaiman when I wrote Whispers in the Wood, my novella that deals with fairy. When you you say fairy, you mean the fae, correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. Just making sure I was on the same page. Yes. Not Tinkerbell. Neil is one of the best in the business at making the fae fucking terrifying. (laughs) Interesting. Butcher, I should say. What's that? I said he and Butcher. I don't know that Butcher makes the Fae terrifying. Uh, uh, they're, uh, they're potent, but I don't know that anything, I would say anything in his books, he doesn't portray them in a way that makes them terrifying. Formidable, yes. Right. That's the, that's the difference. The Dresden Files, you're always in Harry's head, and Harry sure. is a formidable tough as nails, pugnacious son of a bitch who does not know when to quit. And so, yes, he runs into big, scary monsters all the time, but he's a big, scary monster himself. And that 
colors his his approach to them. And yes, there are times when you have Mab or Maeve or yeah. whoever being alien and psycho, but he kind of approaches them the same way that he approaches human psychos like Nicodemus. There is not the the sense that you get in like Coraline or in in Ocean at the end of the lane where you've got a ordinary person who is in contact with this thing that is so otherworldly and the edges of reality are bleeding around them and they they're just a normal person trying to get through this thing alive Mm, okay harry's not terrified and so the reader isn't terrified along with him right interesting what 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 did you make of uh neverwhere i like neverwhere i feel like it is a it's a book I need to go back to. I listened to it in audio while I was in the midst of traveling. And so when I hear audiobooks for the first time while I'm in the midst of doing something else that is momentous and life altering, my experience of the book tends to get bled together with the experience of those events. And so I feel like I need to to go back and experience Neverwhere again in a different context to sort of separate it away from that road trip where I was listening to it. What I do remember really sticking in my head about that book, apart from the, uh, the every man who's stuck in a world that makes no sense to him, which is something you see in a lot of Neil's work. Uh, yeah, um, game and, yeah, even Sandman, especially Sandman. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Sandman. That's it's such a beautiful. I digress though. But the thing, the other thing that really sticks in my head about Neverwhere is the way that he handles angels, which is not all that different from the way that he handles the Fae, which makes sense. You know, in both cases, you've got these these otherworldly creatures that are following impulses and you know agendas that are operating on such a completely different time scale from humanity that it makes them very hard to, to predict or understand. And that makes them scary. But yeah, I really, I really like what he did with the angel and Neverwhere. Do you weave a lot of the uncanny into your work? I try to, it's, um, it depends upon the, you know, what story I'm, I'm writing. And I find that the, the tone of my stories changes depending upon who my, cast is for that particular story whenever abby preston is my viewpoint character shit gets weird and (laughs) that's just part and parcel of the fact that she is a person who's halfway in and halfway out of the living world and so she's perceiving this world of the dead that is alongside the world of the living and that alters her perception and anytime that abby walks on screen it brings this automatic, creepy, otherworldly tone to the story because she herself has this grasp on reality that is, if not tenuous, it is is definitely different from skewed. You know, other people. Yeah, it's skewed. When I'm writing with Will as my viewpoint character, my author character, then it tends to become kind of an Arthur Dentian farce uh, <laughs> because he's you know, an ordinary schlub in a world of things that are crazy going on around him. So like the tone of what I end up writing changes very much depending upon my viewpoint characters. Something you had mentioned earlier that I made a note, but I forgot to ask. You said that when you were doing Metamore City, that it was a second world fantasy. What exactly is a second world fantasy? Second world fantasy is fantasy that takes place in a world that is not ours. Urban fantasies are often first world fantasies. They take place in a world that is ostensibly our own, but just with magic hiding around the edges. Jim Butcher's Dresden Files, the world is still going on as it has always gone on. You've still got ordinary mortal events and politics happening, but you've got wizards and vampires and werewolves and stuff on the margins. Second world fantasy takes place in a world that's completely different from ours, and there may be parallels to our world, but it's not 
the same countries, the, the same continents, the same nations. The genre that spans the two is portal fantasy, like Narnia, where you have mm. characters that start out in our world, but then they travel to a second world and then they come back. So Chronicles of Narnia is a portal fantasy. Peter Pan's a portal fantasy. Peter Pan is a portal fantasy. Right. That means almost every epic fantasy I know of is a second world fantasy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Tolkien, you can argue, is a alternative history because he wrote his stories with the premise that they were taking place in Earth's distant past. And so the Middle Earth that he was writing in evolved into our world. But for all practical purposes, it's still a second world fantasy. Just like a futuristic setting is a second world fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) What about books? Um, I'm thinking of one specifically, a series by um, Charles Strauss, where I think that the series was called Merchant Princes, but some people had the ability to translate between one dimension, one reality, and another one that was nothing like our own. Maybe the same earth, but different countries, Mm -hmm. different peoples, different abilities, different language, more like alternate histories where things changed. So is is that sort of thing second world fantasy or portal fantasy? I guess it's portal fantasy. It could be a portal fantasy. It would I think it would probably depend on the extent to which the uh how much the plot was dependent upon the fact that these were characters from one world who found themselves in another world that they didn't belong in. Portal fantasy is very much following on the old storytelling tradition of the person who steps into fairy or the person who steps into the land of the dead. It's about people from normal life passing through into a place that's different and that experience changing them and them coming through out the other side. You know, you think about the kids who go into Narnia in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and how that changes their lives when they return to to Britain. The experience of having passed through the portal makes them a different person. Stardust, the experience of the young man, I think his name is Tristan, going into the world beyond the wall changes who he is. So um, it's a portal fantasy if they come back to our world. I know that in Strauss's world that other world bleeds over into ours, like in the fact that they stole a nuke and then set it off in the White House. So mm. it definitely has major impact in our normal Earth. So it's, I, I like books that are a little messy like that, that yeah. you don't really know how to place them. You know what, what's really interesting? Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. It starts out, you think that it's a second world fantasy, but it becomes a portal fantasy when it gets into the subtle knife because Lyra passes into our world and she meets a character who's from our world. And then in the Amber Spyglass, you get a whole bunch of other different worlds that are involved. And so what starts out as a second world becomes a portal fantasy in going in the opposite direction, which I always thought was interesting. Well, since you've got this humongous world you're dealing with, how do you, how on earth do you keep it organized? I have a wiki. I have a wiki and I have a librarian. Mildred Katie is uh, my super fan librarian who helps me maintain the, uh, the wiki for Metamore City. And so we work together to put information into the wiki about the characters and places and and stuff i tend to put in stuff that's for new books as i'm writing as i'm adding details i'm putting in information in there but she did a a lot of the work of organizing stuff on the back end sort of like going back through the established canon and putting things in from stories i had already released and putting it into a format that made it usable it's an indispensable tool for me. I could not keep all these details straight oh, if I gosh. didn't have that wiki. I sure as heck wish I had done something like that when I started because <laughs> my main series, I'm, I'm up to seven completed books in there. And I've started noticing things from the early books that I inadvertently changed because I didn't have the details written down correctly. Mm-hmm. 
How many characters do you actually have uh, so far, Chris? Do you have any idea? Let me look. I can answer that for you. All right. In the wiki characters page. 14,205. You can't count that high. (laughs) (laughs) He's over there writing a Perl script. (laughs) My rough account is that I've got somewhere around 100 to 150 characters. Holy crap. In the wiki. Wow. That's just terrifying. <laughs> you never have that problem, Paul, because you kill everyone. Oh, shut right. up. <laughs> That's one of the joys of doing it the way I do it. Um, yeah, that person was around in this book, but they're not in this book. Why? Because they're you dead. Just, you just have to hope they don't inadvertently come back to life sometime. Nah, that doesn't happen. There's no resurrection in my world. Not intentionally, anyone. Not intentionally, yeah, that's true. Except for Thomas Reed, because I have to bring him back and kill him all over again. He never comes back to life. Basically, you're just shipping his dead body from scene to scene. (laughs) No, he just gets killed. uh, says, never even heard of Neil Gaiman. JR, dude. Uh, Dude. And he says, and wouldn't all characters change throughout the course of a novel? Yes, they do. What makes something a portal fantasy is that they are changing because they're passing from the world of the mundane into a, a world of the fantastic where the rules are different. Yeah. For instance, the kids in Peter Pan, when they get to the other side, some are, no, I guess that is Narnia. They can, some of them could do magic. Some of them could do this, but when they come back, they can't do it again. But the experience is still changed. But the experience is still changed. Them. Right. There's a show that I forget which channel it's on called the magicians. Mm, it's on sci-fi. And, uh, it is an, absolutely wonderful show you get to watch the main character become part of a world that he never knew existed and how it changes him and how how the world itself is just always so different than you expect i think that's one of the one of the really fun devices you can always use the reason why i ask you about the uncanny chris because i i know that's what makes this kind of fiction really really work is making things seem unfamiliar even when they should be and it's, it's just a fun place to play. Most definitely. And it's fun to, it's, it's very useful, I find, to make things unfamiliar in order to make it easier to talk about them. The book that I'm working on right now is called The Lost and the Least. And it is about a, a wizard detective who is investigating a series of deaths that are happening on street level. Society in Metamore is very socially stratified, both literally and figuratively. You have the rich people who live in the highest levels of the city and the poor who live in the lowest levels, and then the middle classes that live in the middle. And so moving up in the world is a literal thing, but also very hard to do. But this is a a story in which you've got people who are members of the underclass, the overlooked the outcasts, the forgotten, who are being taken off the street and murdered to power black magic. Mm. And this is a, you know, obviously a fantasy story that depends upon things that, that don't have a direct real world equivalent. But by talking about this problem in this way, it allows me to deal with issues of class and issues of the marginalization of oppressed people, right? which are very relevant, very contemporary topics. You know, we look at the, the refugee crisis that's happening right now in our world. We look at the opioid crisis. There are things that are chewing people up and devouring them that are being ignored or paid only lip service in our politics. And when you talk about these issues in our world, you're automatically engaging people's like tribal identities around their political tribes, their political affiliations, and they stop listening. Yep. And that's true regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. You, know, you engage somebody's political identity, they stop thinking. And they start reacting. They start reacting based on whether you seem like you're part of their tribe or not. 
by taking this idea and telling it in a completely different place with a different problem that is thematically similar, but different enough that it doesn't feel like it's exactly the same thing. I think you can, you can hopefully engage people in a way that's more authentic. Well, that's what made the streets so much fun. Mm -hmm. Cause you just basically, I could talk about gentrification. I could talk about homelessness. I could talk about all that stuff without really trying to make it into a, uh, an ax grinding routine. Right. Exactly. One of our patrons, uh, Caleb James asked this, he says, it's a question for all of us. If we knew for a fact that we'd never make another cent from our work, would we still write and put books out for others to read? Would we still have the passion to be writers if there were no monetary incentives for it? And we'll go ahead and start with you, Chris, and let you, let you answer that. I think it's probably impossible for me to not write. I've been telling stories since I was a little kid. I was telling stories on the internet for about as long as I've had access to the World Wide Web. So, yeah, I think that regardless of whether or not this ever makes me more than beer and pizza money, I'm going to continue telling stories and finding ways to get them into people's hands. Fortunately, it's a lot easier now than it used to be. I know for myself that if I didn't make any money at it, I'd definitely have to go get a day job, but I was writing when I had a day job and I would undoubtedly continue doing so. Yeah. I'm glad that I have a day job because it means that the pressure is not on my writing to be the thing that supports me. The writing is the thing that I do for myself. And yes, it does make me a little bit of money and I would like for it to make me more money. I would like for it eventually to be part of my retirement plan. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad that it, my personal livelihood is not currently leaning on the need for the writing to produce at that level. It does put some pressure on you. I got to say, nah, there's no pressure. I don't know what you're talking about. You're just a wuss. You betcha. <laughs> I was writing before I made money. I was writing the writing after I made money, but the, the biggest thing I needed to I keep writing was to know that somebody was reading. That was the biggest, the biggest reason that uh, I came back to writing when, when I discovered podcasting and, and everything else was the fact that it didn't seem like I was just shouting out until the wilderness. I could at least put the stuff up there in podcasts. And even if only 40 or 50 people were listening to it, that was enough. Yeah. I mean, this is the reason why I came back to podcasting in 2015, because I realized I'd been, I'd left podcasting ostensibly to focus on writing more. Right. And then I didn't write hardly anything um, <laughs> for two years. Oh, man. From when I finished Things Unseen in 2013, I wrote almost nothing up until PG Holyfield died. Oh, okay. Okay. And then it was like, oh, shit. I don't know how much time I have left. Which is something that you know intellectually, but when you see a friend taken like that just so suddenly, when he had so many stories left to tell. Yeah, it's that moment where you, you realize that that clock is running and you never know when it's actually going to stop ticking. Right. And you know, for me, the podcasting gave me a way to, to connect with people, to know that, that there were people who wanted to hear my stories so that I could inspire myself to keep telling them. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I did this show. That's one of the reasons why I'm, st I'm still writing and, and uh, was dumb enough to quit the day job, not going to, you know, tell tech to go F itself and dive right into this because, well, I was doing it anyway. It's been my passion, but I feel more alive because I have a community to be a part of and that there are people who are interested in, in reading what I write. And it, it really does kind of change how you look at things a little bit. I, I mean, granted, I'm, I'm making I'm making barely enough money to to warrant doing this. But the bottom line is that uh, I'd still be doing it anyway. So hopefully things can just get better for all of us. We just kind of move up. Of course, Terry's Mr. Moneybags over there. 
Yeah, whatever. I'm lucky that I'm making enough to to keep the roof over my head. I just got to keep running faster. Got to keep writing more. Writing faster. Do you want to be a full-time writer, Chris? I have a dream that at some point I will be able to reduce the amount of time that I'm spending on the science, maybe drop back to four days a week and then have more time to write. Eventually I'm going to get to the point where I want to retire. And, you know, at that point, I don't think I'm ever going to actually stop writing. So my hope is that eventually I'll get to the point where I'm, I have enough of a continuous income stream from the long tail that I can afford to retire and just focus on writing. But until that time, I, I probably will always keep my hand in, in the sciences. It's nice to have a, uh, a healthcare plan. You know, <laughs> it's nice to have a ready, steady revenue stream that you can plan on. It makes things a lot easier, particularly since my partner is a, is an artist, she's a photographer. And so her income is like this. And so having at least one of us who's got a steady day job that provides benefits mm-hmm. is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm uh, in the position of your partner. <laughs> mm-hmm. My partner, on the other hand, has the job with the bennies. So right. I can just, you know, sit around and slack. Right, Terry? You can sit around and slack too, right? Oh, no, I can't sit around and slack. It's very hard for me as a professional writer getting to the mind space that when I release a book, that's not what I need to be focusing on, how well that book that I just released did. It's day-to-day grind that produces something in two months that I won't get paid for for four months that I need to be keeping in mind. And trying to make sure that I have that particular view is a challenge, and it's always been one. Mm -hmm. It looks like J.R. Handley asked two other questions that I'm going to meld into one question. He said that he would love to have some general questions about your writing process so that we could learn and get better. And he also says, ask him about his writing process, please. You have 13 book titles, and he's curious at the speed that you write and any other processes you use to get things done. So those will all combine into a nice big old general question. About my writing process. Okay. I am not a fast writer. I am not nearly as fast as I want to be. I have come to peace with the fact that I do not expect to become as fast as some of my friends are, but I want to do better than I do. I am using a shared Google spreadsheet called the magic spreadsheet in order to keep track of my daily word counts. It's a, a gamification thing, yep. um, which I find useful because I'm a rat with a lever. And so, you know, I need that little dopamine hit from <laughs> getting those little points next to my name. That's helpful for me. I also keep my own spreadsheet where I keep track of both my writing and the the work that I'm doing on other aspects of my studio work. So editing and layouts and advertising and all that stuff. There isn't a particular like time or place that I go to do my writing because it, it has to fit in around my work schedule. One thing that I found has been useful recently is that I've been doing a lot of writing on my lunch break um, (laughs) where I will remember those days. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll, I'll take my laptop with me to work and I will set up a test to run. And then it's got an hour of runtime where I'm waiting for data. And then I'll go up to the break room and I will, start working on the story. And I may not get very many words down. I may only get a, a few hundred words in that time. But what then happens is I'm thinking about that scene for the rest of the day and working through the problems with it in my mind. So when I get home and I can get back to the computer, it makes that time more productive. I find that I get more done in the the evening writing sessions if I've had that even just a half an hour of writing time at midday. I can't 
really write in the mornings because I already have to get up and shower and pack my lunch and walk the dogs before I can go to work. So my mornings are pretty full already, and I'm not a morning person, so getting up much earlier than I already do would not be very helpful for my sanity. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But midday works. Midday works pretty well. One of the biggest challenges that I've had is figuring out how to make sure that I have enough time with my partner in the evenings that she doesn't feel neglected. There was uh, a while last year where she was like, I feel like we're roommates and (laughs) I occasionally see you, but you're always working on something. And so we had to make an agreement that I would spend my Saturdays working on podcast stuff and writing stuff. And then Sundays were for us. Yeah. Because family day she gets off. And she's at work right now, so Saturday is a, the ideal time for me to actually get some shit done. And then I spend time with her over dinner. We'll watch one television show, and then I'll go and do my my writing stuff. But you just you carve out that time every day, and it helps. It helps a lot. Gotten a lot more stuff written in the last two years since I started doing things this way. When I was working full-time, I would write a little bit in the morning, sometimes a lot in the morning, and try and write at lunch or while I had tests running or something like that. And then if I could and wasn't completely brain dead by the evening, I, I could jump right back into what I was doing as if I'd never left it because it's just there. You don't have to start and stop. It's just there when you come back to it. There's another thing I've been experimenting with in just in the last week or so, which is I will go on these long walks with the dogs at the at the dog park. We've got this beautiful park that's got these long trails where I can just get away from everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I will take my phone with me with my little Apple earphones and turn on the voice memo app. And I'll start talking to myself about what I want to do in the next scene that I'm going to write. And just kind of working out the problem. It's not like narrating the actual words that I'm going to put down, but it's okay. It's creating the knots and then untying them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we'll see how well that works. I've just started doing that. um, And we'll see how much it helps with making my actual writing time more productive. Well, hopefully that'll work out. Yes. So how soon can we expect another book from you? So The Lost and the Least is almost finished. It's been almost finished since December, but I haven't gotten a lot of time in on it. So this week I am announcing on my podcast that for the 10th anniversary of Metamore City, I'm going back and I'm re-recording and re-releasing the stories from the Urban Legends story collection. Mm. Um, This will, number one, let me get those re-recorded in a quality of audio that will let me then put it on Audible. Audible. And number two, while those are running on the feed, then I don't have to worry about running to write new fiction that can then go on to that week's episode. Um, so I can focus on getting this damn novel out the door. <laughs> um, my alpha reader has been like devouring what I've been sending her and she's, really excited about where the story is going, but I need to get it finished so that I can then get it out to my round of beta readers and get my edits back and do all the other production stuff I've got to get done. But if all goes well, the lost and the least will be out by December. And that's when I'm hoping to have the urban legends, uh, audiobook done as well. Cool. Well, when you get those done, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show. Thank you. And very soon here, sometime in the next couple of weeks, the audiobook for Divine Intervention is going to be available for sale on Audible. I've submitted the files. They, I believe I've got all the kinks worked out now, so that should be coming up uh, for sale before the end of May. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, it's, I'm really glad to see that uh, you're getting back at it. I know you you took a little, a little siesta from things, a little... What do you call it? Sabbatical. There we go. Mm-hmm. So really good to, to see you come back. Can't wait to see the crazy you're going to do at Balticon this year. So 
So the the story I have for Metamore City Live this year, Rafa Galeri and the Vampire's Bargain, it's going to be a fun ride. You guys should definitely come out for it. Yeah, if you're going to Baltica, I, I try and as much as possible, as often as possible, attend that, but I frequently end up scheduled opposite you or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least you know it's going to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, exactly, which is always kind of nice. All right, Terry, you got any other questions before we, we cut this sucker up? No, I think we're good. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for, for being our alpha tester. <laughs> Our alpha interview. This, this was this was the first one. It, it like Terry said, it went a lot better than it should. Have. Yay! <laughs> We're shocked. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, let, let's end with uh, where where can we find you? You can find Metamore City at metamorecity.com. You can find my author blog and all the information about my audiobook production and narration services, and my The Raven and the Writing Desk podcast at chrislester.org. You can find the links there as well to my catalog of stories. Right now I'm on Am- on Amazon exclusively with the story collections, Urban Legends, Divine Intervention, Things Unseen, Making the Cut. Those four volumes are all on KDP Select right now. They will be for probably the next six months. So that's where to get me right now. You can get me on, on Amazon and Audible. And the uh, the podcast runs a new episode every week. So tune in there and you can uh, see what I'm working on. I also wanted to go ahead and thank the patrons for uh, supporting us and making this podcast possible and making this live cast certainly possible. Thanks to our $10 contributors who all submitted questions and uh, we love being able to ask them for you. Yeah, this was great. I'm, I'm really glad uh, the attendance... And uh, hope hope our patrons enjoyed this. And guess what? We'll be doing another one of these next month. So, Boot. yeah, this this is going to be. Well, what do you think, Terry? We should do this every weekend, don't you think? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm already juggling three or four shows. I'm already doing three or four shows a week. What's the fifth one? Uh, <laughs> yes, but I have actual productivity that I need to meet. Oh, uh, so uh, do I. So do I. Do we really need to compare audible sales? I'll leave it right there. Anyway, folks, thank you very much for joining us, Chris. Pleasure talking to you. I can't wait to see you in, in two weeks at Balticon. It's going to be a blast. Hopefully, we'll we'll get some, some audio from you there as well. And uh, patrons, we'll, um, you'll get more content Wednesday. So thanks for coming. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was our interview. I hope you had as much fun with it as I did. Till Lindemann said, Art doesn't work without pain. Art also exists for compensating pain. So, take two stories and call me in the morning. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 3,473 words this week, over the course of 5.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 604 words per hour. I wrote on five out of seven days this week. After taking off the month of May to focus on vacation, Balticon prep, and audiobook production, I kicked off June by returning to the lost and the least. I'm now up to chapter 53, and the manuscript is just under 170,000 words. As I mentioned before I left on my trip, my goal right now is to push through and finish this book as fast as I can and then get it edited and get it to market. Over on the Patreon feed, I have a few new patrons who've joined up this month. Please welcome Ken, Jenny, and Michael Astonax. Remember, becoming a patron is the single best way to support this show and help me to keep making it. Pledging as little as $3 a month will get you access to art previews, cover reveals, sneak peeks, and other cool stuff. And even if you can only pledge a dollar a month, you'll still get access to my behind-the-scenes commentary podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. 
My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Shadow Publications and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.